0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our guest this week is Sam Antamatin, who is someone who does things in the mountains that very few skiers do, and I would argue can do, And in this conversation, you'll get a better sense of the background and the trajectory that got Sam to where he is today. Now, we also get an update from Sam on the status of La Liste 2, which is a film that I know many, many of us are really looking forward to. And this goes without saying, but if you have yet to see the film La Liste, you need to probably go do that right now and then come back and listen to this conversation. Anyway, in this conversation, Sam and I also go into the details and get into the process of absolutely flashing massive big mountain lines, and we touch on a whole number of other topics too. This is a great conversation with a super impressive guy, and so let's just go ahead and get right to it. Well, Sam, how are you today, and where are you today?
1: Yeah, thanks for the invitation, Jonathan. I'm in Zermatt, Switzerland, my hometown, and today I have a rest day. We had uh, three really good powder days. Last 3 days was pretty phenomenal
0: as as we have a low low season till now, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, talk to me a little bit about this. We on this side, we were just saying on a recent podcast that we're overdue to get a bit of a european update just how things are going from a general snow point of view maybe also what's happening with ski areas give us an update
1: yeah short update here um italy is closed with the with the ski resorts france is closed with the ski resorts germany is in, in a lockdown and we are in the middle here in switzerland and everything is open uh, not everything. We have uh, restaurants that are closed, but uh, still the ski lifts are running, and that's pretty pretty good for me right now to to make uh, good training days. But at the same, yeah. The same way. It's a, yeah, pretty scary or special situation as we we have this COVID situation, and over New Year and Christmas we had thousands of pe- people here in Zermatt, which feels a little weird where you should be like distancing from each other. There, there you have like, yeah, a lot of people around here. So that's the point right now on the COVID situation. But uh, yeah, on the other side, we have the snow situation, which is, which is really good in Italy and Southern Tirol. They had a lot of snow, and also I think the northern part here in Italy was getting quite, quite some centimeters. But uh, yeah, in Zermatt right now is super dry. We got uh, two really bad layers lower down from uh, early snowfall in October, so we got not the best like yeah constellation for snow stability right now. It's not the ideal situation.
0: Hey, those of us who spend some time in the backcountry, we're supposed to be good at adjusting to not ideal situations, right? So, it's, it's all par for the course, as they say.
1: Right, right. So, you adapt to the conditions and you do what you can. And yeah, definitely. I think it's really important that you look on current conditions also. Same thing with the COVID. It's a new factor that you have to just put in into your planning or into your decision making. And there we go. Like just ski what feels good and push it when you can push it, but don't push it when you're, when you shouldn't. Yeah.
0: Yep. Read the signs. Yeah. Right. What does a normal early season look like for you? Like in terms of how much time you spend inbounds in a ski area versus how quickly you try to start ski touring. What's a normal year look like as opposed to like the start of this season?
1: Well, a normal year, usually we get a lot of snow from the Italian side usually. And that means that we have powder days already in October or November. So we can do like inbounds, what you call it, like resort base with powder just to get, yeah, to get the, the vertical meters, to get the legs flowing. And right now, this season, that was like delayed. And also we are in Zermatt, we can ski up on the Swiss side and ski down to the Italian side. And that's now not possible because of the restrictions from the COVID. And so we are, yeah, we are not joining our friends over in Italy to ski powder. And they are are having powder, but they have the lifts closed. So usually that's the season. Right now, yeah, this season is special. It's quite dry and it started really late. So it was beginning of December, mid-December that we were skiing off piste a little bit. And still right now, it's not like fully, fully like filled in.
0: Good European update. <laughs> we should make you our European news correspondent, I think. Before we get, you know, too much further into specific topics, I think I'd like to have you give us a, you know, a, a couple minute version of your background and kind of your trajectory just to, one, I'd be curious to hear you tell your own story here, but just to also make sure that some of the people listening are all kind of up to speed with, you know, where you grew up and kind of your own trajectory in the mountains, say. And then we can maybe dive into some specific questions that I'm pretty interested in asking you today.
1: Yeah, sounds good. So yeah, I grew up uh, here in Zermatt, 1986 I was born. Uh, I raised uh, with two other brothers, one younger sister. And in the beginning, it was really like skiing outside of the door, just in front of our house. Right in front, we were just playing in the snow. With two, three years old, we we were just getting on skis and just growing into it. And somehow my brother started climbing when he was 11 years old and he needed a partner to to be to go to climb to be uh yeah secured and that's where i came into the game so that's where i started my climbing career and with with 12 years old i was on a national team and we were climbing competitions doing then later on also ice climbing competitions so when i was 16 i did uh, the ice climbing world cup and i was quite good on it was winning some of those world cups and did that for quite a while got into the alpinism side and it all evolved like yeah climbing ice climbing alpinism and all of a sudden 2008, we had a really good winter. Every access for ice climbing was too dangerous, too exposed for avalanches. And I just, I was just more and more into skiing. So I started skiing more and was also adding my, my knowledge of the alpinism to skiing. So I was able to, to do like steep descents and went into that side, but also into the direction of a competition scheme on Freeride World Tour qualifiers, which I did a few. And then it was 2010, I was climbing with my brother in Yosemite Valley, climbed 10 times El Cap. And six months later, I got a wild card, or like one month later, I got a wild card. For the Freeride World Tour, and six months later, I was the runner-up at the Freeride World Tour, and it shifted from climbing to freeriding in half a year, like the the whole focus. And um, yeah, um, for yeah, my father is not really a climber; he's scared of heights. The mother is not really. A climber, but they were showing us like the mountains just by, yeah, by doing big hikes. And that was, yeah, the short <laughs> version. <laughs> but yeah, and here we are. Now I'm a professional freerider and try to add all my experience together to do what I'm, yeah,
0: try, trying to show you guys. That is a fascinating trajectory. I watched La Liste again last night prior to this conversation. And it's like hearing you walk through your, as you're talking through your background and experience, I'm just thinking like, this was the right person. This was the right <laughs> person for that for that project. It's really something else. And it's, it's really cool. I, I found myself thinking, maybe wondering that when we, think about sort of the broad history of ski mountaineering, I wonder how much of a generalization we could make about maybe people getting into skimo 10, 20, 30 years ago, if they were coming with more of that foundation in climbing. Because today, I feel like we're seeing a lot of skiers Go from the skiing side and trying to then move into alpinism. Do those generalizations hold true in your experience, or do you think it's always been a mixed bag? I
1: think it it always has been a mixed bag because you know skiing uh, in young age in Zermatt. If I if I go to the ski ski area tomorrow, I need two minutes to get to the gondola, and I'm up there straight away. And that was what we did. Always when we were young or uh, when, when we had no school, we just went skiing. And the same thing when I want to go climbing, I walk one minute outside of my door and I can climb. And it's really like mixed back. And it's, I think it's the, the easy and, and fast access to the mountain that was leading me that to that way. It was just natural. You had both. I had both. It was there. I wasn't talented in reading or in anything else. So, so, I went climbing or skiing.
0: <laughs> it seems to have worked out for you so far. Definitely, yeah. yeah. So far. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your own history with steep skiing. When did that really first become... An interest, not when did you like first start doing it? When did you first actually start thinking more about it and getting kind of attracted to lines, steep lines?
1: Well, steep lines, that was, it was getting attractive for me when I was 18, 19 years old. I was also at that time in summer climbing a lot of like difficult peaks with my brother. And in winter, I remember doing like the ski teacher examination and that was helping me a lot f- to be technically better on skis. So we always have, yeah, you always have these 4,000 meter peaks around it, around your home. And you know, yeah, you, you can climb them, but them, but you can also ski them. And that was the history was showing that. That it's possible. And I remember well when I first wanted to ski the, the Matterhorn East Face, I was 19 years old. And I didn't tell anybody that I want to ski it. I just went up, did like a training run the day before because I had some uh, rental skis. Because I thought I should better get some other skis than my. And mine because they were pretty messed up so i went with some rental skis had a little training run went to the to the Hernley hut to sleep there overnight and i didn't show up at dinner that night so my mother was a little worried and she called me at around 8 in the evening she called me and was asking where i was and i couldn't lie to her I told her that I want to ski the Matterhorn tomorrow morning. And that was the first time that I heard my mother getting really, really angry with myself. So I packed my bags and went, went back home. And a year later, I skied the face with a friend of mine and everything was way better pre- prepared. And yeah, it felt much better.
0: No rental skis? <laughs>
1: No rental, <laughs> no rental skis. And just with with somebody together up there because it was pretty intimidating. I was yeah, nineteen years old. I was alone at the hut, seeing that like mountain doing the during the evening and it was yeah, it was intimidating.
0: At nineteen, I mean, I'm also thinking about the conditions and how stable the snowpack would be, did you have already, did you feel comfortable in, along those lines when you were 19 or were you, um, perhaps a little bit ahead of, <laughs> I mean, I know you didn't ski it when you were 19, you waited right till you were 20, but like, did you feel like I already have a good handle? I know if I went to the top of this line, I'd have a good feeling of, would this go? Should this be done or not?
1: Yeah, you know how it is, at 19 you think you are, you have a good handle about it. But it's, I, I really felt comfortable that time. But if I look back on it right now, it's like, oh. I was, I was pushing my, myself for sure. I did another uh, descent, one of the steepest I have done in my life. It's the Brighthorn on the north face and yeah halfway down everything got icy and it's like usually it's like a 60 degree ice climb and i was with my skis on on icy conditions and worked my way down it worked out but if i look to that line today and if i'm just um putting myself into that line i'm like No way, I wouldn't ski it today, and not with those conditions. I think when you're young, you're pushing your limits. You need certain knowledge, but you also need a little bit of luck, because, yeah, you can't have that much of experience when you're that young. Yeah, it's difficult, but I think, yeah, sometimes, It's good to go
0: out. Sometimes you should stay at home. That is true. That is solid advice. We've arguably kind of buried the lead here. A big question that is probably on the minds of a lot of people listening to this conversation is the question of what's up with La Lise 2, right? I think initially there were plans to possibly release that film like this past autumn, and the world got rather topsy turvy. But give us an update. Yeah, tell us about Lalise two
1: Yeah, Laliz two uh, project with Jeremy Heights. I think a lot of you guys have seen least one. We had a, a lot of good reactions on it, so we said, uh, "Let's go. Let's go further. Let's go. Let's make the next next project." So we came up with the idea to ski six thousand meter peaks around the world and of course that's uh, not that easy as we can see right now we are in a difficult situation because we yeah the mountains are difficult already to to have an expedition somewhere around the globe on a 6000 meter peak it's not that easy to organize with all the filmers and everything and with the current condi- um travel conditions or just that covid situation we are uh, super limited to so as an update yeah 2020 we wanted to release that movie but as we couldn't do anything in spring we were not ready just to to public publish it so right now we are looking on options to Travel to India in April, May this year, 2021, and hopefully that's going to work out to finally finish the movie and release it this coming autumn. But that's it's all as I said, like already I'm doing an, doing an expedition on that in that altitude, and then film it. It's quite complicated and with that situation with the covid situation it makes the whole project even more complicated
0: we've been talking about being adaptable and it's like here's yet another here's yet another example of that right it's like the mountains don't care when you want to release your film right it's right, like yeah yeah, COVID doesn't care, the mountains don't care, and our job is to just understand when it's time to go and when it's time to not go.
1: Right, just to adapt to the mountains. Of course, there is another really big uh, factor that you have to see, it's uh, the money. So sponsors are raising money and of course they want to have an an outcome of it. So when you tell them that we are already doing a three-year project, which is quite expensive, and then adding another year, it's definitely some people are a little less happy, but you cannot change that. Neither you change it by going away from your project, from your idea to do something else. But in this case, we really want to stick to it and go for the vision that we have in mind.
0: Yeah. So the least comes out. 2016 right and so how soon after the release of that film were you and jeremy kind of on to number two
1: so we had the release of la Liste one and of course i think also jeremy wasn't um he was surprised by how much good feedback he got from la Liste one and i think it definitely also is because it was surprisingly a new thing like just skiing down the GS turns on a 4000 meter peak we haven't seen that really much and now we have seen it and that's why I think least well, two might be difficult to raise the bar to that yeah, to what the people accept in my opinion but yeah, of course we were We were pushing hard and yeah. When
0: did you two first
1: meet? So I met uh, Jeremy on my first qualifier in Italy. So Freeride World Tour qualifier, which I was skiing in 2010. That's where I met him and uh, he remembers me tumbling down that mountain. And then later, I think a year later or two—no, two years later—we were together on the Freeride World Tour, and that's where we we become friends. But it was at that time, you know, Jeremy didn't had any experience of mountaineering, so that that wasn't in my mind. It was never like we would be skiing together, doing like big big uh, mountaineering trips. And he really raised the bar from his side just to, to get into this. Yeah,
0: Talk about that partnership with him in the mountains, whether it's thinking through what potential objectives to try, whether it's once you're actually out to attempt a line. how How do you guys work together? Tell us about that.
1: Well, you have to understand, like Jeremy, when I met him, yeah, he wasn't like into ski touring, into climbing. And all of a sudden he had like this, I don't know, he was just going, going for it. And we were, we were just, yeah, we were just, uh, doing ski tours together, doing more and more big mountain lines together. And the crazy thing is Jeremy is sometimes that he's really competitive. So imagine like a guy who is really competitive on the ski hill. You bring him him into the mountains and he just wants to go for it. So he was running up the mountains and just like unstoppable with the motivation always like over his head. And sometimes I, I had to a little bit like slow him, him down on certain uh projects also just safety wise or not safety wise, it was just not yeah worth it to to go for it full on. As a partner he's like really always super motivated. Jeremy is always like motivated, sees the positive things and that's like super cool to to work with him together. At the end, it's he's always up to do another run. He's always there. He's always super stoked on skiing. And that's important.
0: Do you feel like as you have spent more time in the mountains, is he still the one who's inclined to be like, no, no, it's it's probably fine. We can go. And you are maybe still in the role of, we might want to rethink that. For the moment, or is that starting to level out a bit more right, just in terms of some of the decision making and you know it's always a conversation in the mountains right well, that's where
1: we decision making that's where we come back to la List two so um we had a big big um happening on on the shoot for La List two, and I think since since that, we are both leveling out. We are both, um, yeah, Jeremy isn't like the little kid anymore that is like running for every peak. He's really like overthinking what he's doing and doing the right decisions. And um, yeah, I think it's really leveled out on that side. Yeah.
0: You also spend a good bit of time in the mountains with Xavier De La Rue. And I'm kind of just curious, are there any sort of big differences or key differences between a day out with Jeremy versus a day out with Xavier?
1: Yeah, definitely. There is a big difference between Xavier and Jeremy. Uh, It was always like Xavier was, was going for it, but he was like really surprising. Like, you know, he was like, the snowboarder that was just walking with the open shoes with his harness not tightened, and just like yeah, sometimes when I was with Xavier was I was thinking like what what is he doing? He's not he's not gonna write that line like he's right now in this state. And then like he's like switching bam and focusing fully on writing. And on the other side, Jeremy is like really like set. Like when he, when he's there, when he shows up, he's like on point. And then also he's like sending it. And at the end, uh, I think the, what you see is really similar, but the approach to it, Xavier has his like French side where he's a little bit, yeah, chilled and also like, snow, it's a snowboarder, (laughs) let's say like that. But um, yeah, I think Jeremy is way more like precise on what he wants, what he's doing.
0: I had Xavier on the podcast. It's, I don't know, it's been some years ago now. And man, hearing him talking about riding big lines, deciding on an objective, it was still one of my it's a conversation I just continue to think about, you know, and he was one of the first people that I think I ever heard really talk about, you know, in this style of just basically flashing big lines. He's like, well, you know, get down fast is one way to be safe in the mountains, right? Right? It sure seems like you and, and Jeremy have maybe have, uh, have a bit of a shared philosophy in that regard
1: yeah definitely it's a sharing philosophy from jeremy and my side but it, it comes from xavier at the end i was when i was runner-up 2011 xavier was calling me if we could go filming also because i was a mountain guide and that was like my first time filming for free riding was with xavier and i was doing in comparison, I was doing short turns down the mountain and he was flying down the mountain and I got inspired by Xavier. Huh. And that was like a little bit, uh, yeah, for me also an eye-opener, how you can ride those big nines. So it's definitely like Xavier was leading leading the way.
0: Do you see much of him these days? Do you guys, I mean, in a normal year, how often might you link up with him?
1: Uh, with Xavier, Xavier, I see him a lot on meetings right now with, <laughs> with North Face and Swatch. Uh, not so much anymore for writing as uh, as before. We did a few projects together, like Mission Steeps, one of our first movies, Degrees North also. And even before that, we had two... Um, two sessions for his snowboard movies where we were yeah skiing together and i i missed that a bit but uh, for this season i gonna partner up with uh victor the little Delarue brother Your brother yeah, uh, which is pushing quite hard right now too and it's it's super cool because always yeah Always, when you're riding with a dolerie, you know that it's uh, something's going on.
0: <laughs> that's very well put. Yeah, that's very well put. Let's talk for a minute about, you know, actually skiing, like a 45 or 50 degree slope. When you're going onto a face or a line like that, what would be sort of your ideal snow condition would you want there to be deep pow would you want there to be firm smooth corn how How do you think about that and what are you looking for
1: well first of all on a 45 50 degree slope it's the best would be to have pow. just because you're then you're standing with your edges Better on a on a bigger surface, so it gives you secu- security. But on the other side, you have the avalanche danger, so you don't want pow. Let's say best would be pow, but usually it's not possible. So if you have like an older, chalky pow that has had a, a lot of clear nights where you have no instability anymore in there but it's super good etchable. That's the preferred. It's definitely, it shouldn't be like too much snow, but also it shouldn't be like super hard pack because if you you have a
0: little bit of stand with your edge, it's way better. And I mean, it's like when you're skiing low angle stuff really fast or as fast as you can in low angle terrain, I mean, it still seems like all the time, It's like, oh, there's a nice chunk, you know, coming up and you kind of have to adjust and modify for that. And I think, you know, watching something like La Liste, it's like there really is this element where it almost just looks way too easy when you have these beautiful drone shots or shots from a heli or something, right? And you just see a kind of canvas and a a small dot moving smoothly down it, I'm like, that's not what snow in big mountains actually looks like or feels like. So I guess I wonder, like, when you are making really fast, big turns in consequential terrain, how much are you adjusting to or thinking about like, oh, here comes a big, you know, bowling ball sized ice chunk sitting there?
1: You have to understand like all those lines in La List 1 are 4,000 meter peaks or a little smaller peaks that are in the Alps that we are observing the whole season. It's like the whole season, we are looking on it, on the evolution for of the snow. And La, La List 1 was a two years project. So we had two seasons to look at the best possible conditions. And then at the end, we are skiing most of those lines in May, June, or even July. So when you get the wet precipitation in the in the high altitude mountains. So usually we are looking for those conditions that are, that are quite regular. So you shouldn't, hit any ice or, or anything else. And we try to be as sure about it as possible while climbing up. So when you climb up, you spend hours just like getting up to the top, but all, also observing how the snow is settled, how conditions are underneath the snow. And that's like, it's, yeah, honestly, the least one is like two years of work in a really short, short movie packed and you don't see how hard it actually is. It seems if you look to the, that movie, it seems like, okay, let's do that tomorrow. We go for it. But you don't see all the work behind it. And I think it's really everything like, The whole preparation makes it a good a good movie. It doesn't show the preparation, but the preparation was was the key thing about it.
0: It's funny, every one of those peaks in La Liste One, I felt like could have been its own movie. And it's funny, I, I really think that, you know, Cody Townsend's The 50 project, right, where he is maybe going into more depth on each of these objectives and sort of showing all of the kind of calculations and work and the rest going into it that's been a cool thing and a and a good development and hopefully if some people have seen some of those episodes in the 50 when you go watch a film like La Liste it maybe gives people a better sense of like yeah these guys didn't just didn't just roll up to this line and are like yeah let's might as well try that just try it. <laughs> no, no, I think, yeah, that's right. And
1: yeah, like Cody's project is super nice too. It's like he has, I think he has set the bar super high. It's not, not easy what he's doing. And it was the same thing when Jeremy was approaching me about La List 1. And he told me like, look, I got a list of 15 peaks, which I want to ski in two seasons. And I told him like, what, what the heck are you thinking? Like already, if you do half of them in two seasons, you can be, you can, you're lucky. And yeah, at the end, also we, we were lucky with conditions, but you also have to be ready. You have to go for it. You have to push it and not be like, Oh no yeah, conditions might be not good and I'm not going, then you you will never get to a result like that. It's also when I think Cody, his 50 project, he needs, he has to go for it. And that's difficult to be motivated when everybody goes to the beach, you're still hiking to the mountain to go skiing. You know, and that's where the difference is it's it's way more than just like skiing down somewhere
0: i'm interested to hear you talk about we've been talking about these big alpinist lines let's talk a bit more about kind of the freestyle element of skiing and maybe the the fwt i'm gonna ask i feel like i might know the answer to this question (laughs) i'm gonna ask it anyway when you are you know not boot packing up big lines that are real scary looking when you then move over to an fwt comp run is there a sense of like this feels nice by comparison or is it just a different set of things to be looking out for you know what i mean like does the fwt stuff feel chill to you in a way compared to the other stuff or just different
1: no it's i think the fwt it's it's also pushing the sport we've seen the we have seen the level on skis on the on the boards is crazy high and it's not like chilled it's like it's definitely something else but it's it's not like yeah if you if you do like a big mountain line you're waking up at four or three o'clock in the morning you're crawling up out of your tent you're try you try to eat something. The FW team you you wake up in a in a nice four-star hotel in the morning, you take the chopper or the gondola to the top of the mountain and then you have to send it. But it's yeah. It's also at at the end you wanna show your best performed skiing. And it's a different it's just a different let's say pressure on you on, on my on my side it was that that I was I wanted to be not the best skier on the mountain but yeah yeah I wanted to be on the podium when I went to the FWT and I was putting myself pressure on it not for yeah you didn't have to all that safety stuff to think about it but you had to think really precise on how you ski that line, and I think on the if you compare it to La List La List one, you have like open planar faces. The riding is not like technical with like three jumps in it where you have to be super precise on on the on the drops. So it's it's yeah, it's more like let's compare it from climbing like the FWT is like bouldering and. Big mountain skiing is like climbing on El Cap.
0: I like that analogy. Yeah. So maybe then the follow-up question should be, so how often are you practicing bouldering, right? Meaning like, so how often are you then, you know, on your FWT runs, you're throwing in a three or a backflip. How often are you actually getting Time in to work on kind of the freestyle aspect of your own skiing.
1: Yeah, how how often I'm actually bouldering or doing like a FWT run. It's it's actually quite like right now on this time. Usually from December to January, February. It's really it's more like this, like like small smaller lines that I'm skiing, and. I try to do that like every week like 3 to 4 days and then on the on not on the day on the days off but usually on the other days I'm doing like big touring uh cool wars where where you do 1500 or 2000 meter just of of hiking to get the the endurance but it's also There is not only right now, I don't have only the Lalis 2 as a project. There is also a faction movie that is coming out again and uh, not with North Face with Victor. I'm filming. So I want to be as complete as possible on my skis. So it's, I want to do big mountain lines. I want to ski 6,000 meter peaks, but I also want to be able to do a 360 or backflip off a cliff that's like for me that's yeah at the end the ultimate run is like a big mountain line where at the end you have a feature or in the middle where you can show your trick and it's like yeah that's that's what i think skiing is is, <laughs> is like
0: that's yeah that's certainly an ideal version of skiing and uh, a pretty cool one that not that many people are out there doing both at a really high level. I mean, I think we're certainly seeing more folks bring that element in. That's still a pretty cool and pretty special thing, I'd say.
1: Yeah, I think it's a special thing. But I, I think the whole like the evolution goes to that side that you really want to be a complete skier in every possible manner. And for me, it really helps to be skiing in a park. I really gain a lot of air awareness for that, also for, for later on in the season. And it's, you know, it, it makes sense to go skiing in the park in October because you cannot ski any like bigger, bigger lines on, on the 4,000 meter peaks. So it's better to be on the quality side, trying to get technically better in, on that side. And then using that also for all the other experiences that you have or that you
0: yeah that you make. Can we wrap up this conversation by talking a little bit about gear? Yeah. <laughs> by the way, I had somebody at faction tell me it's probably been a few years ago, but they were like, you need to have a conversation with Sam about just gear in general and kind of ski design and the rest, you know, it's, it's getting late for you out there in Switzerland. So Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, I'm not going to make you do that now, but I think maybe that conversation should be in our future sometime. But for now, another thing, and we're talking about a bit of a special combination that you've just been talking about. I think another pretty interesting and special thing is that you will pretty frequently switch between like very directional, stout skis like the faction dictators and then you'll also go spend time on more playful skis like some of the candides i'm just curious to ask how natural or fluid it feels to you switching between two very different types of skis or if it's always still a bit of a recalibration for you when you're making those kind of switches
1: well that's that's a good question it's uh something i was i wasn't really thinking about in the past and more and more right now i'm like thinking like if i want to if i if i want to push my my skiing if if i should stay on one ski or not because it's really it i didn't yeah i could change from one ski to the to another super fast and it it worked out really well. I don't know why. It's just I need a little bit of time to adapt it to it, but it's sometimes it's only like a run. When I got on faction skis, like I got a pair of the candides just to try them. And it was like it was the skiers cup here in Zermatt where I was not in my comfort zone. I was like doing tricks, and that's not usually not what I'm doing. But I was kind of testing those skis for the first time on the backcountry slope style of the skier's cup, and they worked out out super well. And it was like really a feeling when I started out of the gate, it needed like 10 seconds, and I was like, okay, it's, this ski is holding up well. So I could... Adapt to the skis super fast. I think it's something. On the other side, I can not adapt to a boot super fast, and I'm, I'm like super compl- complicated with my boots. When I, I, yeah, right now also I'm struggling to find the perfect boot for, for myself. And if something is not right on my boot, I, I'm not, I'm not skiing well. But the ski, I can super, I can super fast adapt to to almost every ski.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of us probably feel similarly. Like you feel like you won the lottery if you have a boot that is working out for you, and it's just like, okay, good. I I found the exact right combination or had it fit just right, and it's like get that boot dialed in and. There's a number of skis out there that probably a lot of us could get along with, but probably a lot fewer boots that we would be equally happy going out to ski.
1: Yeah, when you when when the boot fits well, you're really, I think you you're skiing. It's just like the talk to you. Um, I don't know this word in English, but it's really you feel. You feel it. It's, yeah, it's just there. If something is pushing or it's not good, then you're, you have a bad day, but you cannot adapt it. And on the ski, I think it's easier to adapt to a ski than to a, to a bad boot.
0: What word were you thinking of that you said there's not an English equivalent? Um, toctil when you're, ah. tactile. <laughs> That's interesting to hear you say that you sometimes wonder if you wouldn't progress more or faster with your own skiing if you were on one ski sort of all the time. If you had to choose one I mean you do too many different things like you you couldn't pick one ski today and just say I'm going to compete on this, I'm going to go you know climb 6000 meter peaks on this right right yeah i'm i've i like to have to be able to choose
1: other skis you're also not uh, eating every day only rice it's um sometimes it's good to switch up a bit and there is definitely for every type there is a specific tool that works better and definitely for skis yeah you on a 6,000-meter peak, you don't need a twin tip. But I'd like to have a twin tip tomorrow when I go skiing in the forest. And that's, yeah, my opinion. Uh Yesterday, I skied with Candid, and he's only skiing on the Candid 5.0. So
0: He spends all, most of his days on that ski, no? He spends like
1: almost all season on the Candid 5.0. And he skis it in every condition, Even he, he skis it even on, on the slope and it's 122 millimeters on the foot.
0: Yeah. Do you ever say to him, hey, Candide, I think only using one ski all the time might be holding you back from <laughs> no, really reaching yeah. your true potential?
1: <laughs> no, I will no, never say that to him. No.
0: <laughs> I wanted to also ask you and, and talk just for a minute about bindings you've been using the cast system for a while now, but you've now been hauling that system up some very big lines. Yeah. And talk a little bit about that decision to bring. I mean, it ain't the lightest option out there by any stretch. Right. And even someone with your impressive amount of experience on big lines, I think there are still a lot of skiers out there who might say, this is silly. Why why not just ski a much lighter binding? You're a good enough skier to do it. You have the experience, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So say a bit about that, that decision.
1: Well, it's it's pretty easy that decision to drag up cast touring bindings to six thousand meter peaks. It's because we are focusing On the skiing. Yeah. And I don't feel comfortable with any pin system, which I tried several times. I also skied a version where I was mounting a pin front toe piece and the look pivot on the back, which was my, my like, yeah, my setup for one year just to do steep lines also to do one 6,000 meter peak in in Peru, but that was already like, that's quite a long time ago. And it just didn't feel that safe. It was always like trying to do something, but it wasn't the real thing. And now with the cast system, okay, we are dragging weight around, but at the same time, Also, our skis are not like the super lightweight skis that we bring on, on those peaks. Yeah. I was climbing in Pakistan, in Peru, in my normal ski boot without any walking mode, on like a racing boot. So that's, it's a lot of adding gear, but only because our focus is on skiing. And there is no pin binding, which you can ski on difficult conditions like super fast. Otherwise, if there would be a really good pin binding, if this would be the best thing to ski, every alpine skier would would ski it on the come on every like like race and even on the freeride world tour. But it's not. So that's why we decide the best way to get up with with the cast system the touring or the walking mechanism is really good and then you switch to the best to, uh, tool to to get down from the from the mountain and the pivot for me it's yeah perfect
0: well said i i just the other day received a i don't know slightly angry email that was sort of accusing me of hating on pin bindings and I'm like, I'm not hating on them. I think there is an absolute place for them. Definitely. Yeah, But it depends on the person. It depends on the objective. And I, I still worry quite a bit that we're seeing a number of new people coming into these, into the sport of backcountry skiing or even resort skiing. And they're still opting for a pin binding and are either being told that it's sort of exactly the same don't worry about it or they're just under the false impression that it's the same and i I think that's my biggest thing it's like if you're an expert and you are an accomplished mountaineer and backcountry skier and your very lightweight pin binding is working out well for you i have no problem with that at all but I, my concern is more about the vast number of people coming in, buying pin bindings, and sort of not understanding the compromises that they might be making. And like, you're making a compromise too. You're just clear about it. It's like, we'll go heavier so that when we get to the top, we'll take the, the weight penalty on the way up because we can't afford to have a compromise on the downhill. Se- Does that seem right to you?
1: Yeah, that seems definitely right. Like, I think the pin binding was bringing ski touring to a, to a next level. Like, the pin binding was super important. Also, right now, my brother is running on the, on the World Cup for ski touring World Cup. And that's all he uses. And that's like the best tool for him that exists. But now we are combining touring with free riding or with like GS turns on 6,000 meter peaks, then you need something else. Then a pin binding, in
0: my opinion, is not the right tool. And perhaps especially if you're trying to ski these lines, the way that you are skiing these lines.
1: Right, you know, we had people who are working at other brands who are doing We're designing like shift bindings, which is super nice binding. But like people were honestly telling us that it's not working for, for what we do. It's not working for high speed exposed like runs as, as Jeremy and myself are doing right now. But otherwise, like the whole evolution is helping for, for the whole ski industry. Like, a shift binding, I mount it on the ski of my mother, of of my girlfriend. It's perfect for them. But for myself it's it's not working out.
0: Boy, we might have to have a Sam versus Cody follow-up conversation. (laughs) You guys can duke it out virtually or something.
1: (laughs) No, Cody of course. I think he's he's skiing now everything on the on the shift and It's, it's great what he does, but, uh, yeah, it's, um, his philosophy and I accept it and my philosophy is that I'm dragging a little bit more weight and I want to be on the safe side to have a really, to have an Alpine binding on the way down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And maybe to just wrap this, I, again, this isn't about hating on pin bindings or or whatever. It's just, I think it seems right that everybody needs to be clearer about the compromises we're making. And if they really are clear on that, then go do your thing and do what works for you. But I know because we get emails from people coming in from all around the world, there's still a lot of confusion about some of the differences here and the compromises that you're going to get if you're Skiing a pin versus a shift versus, you know, say a cast system, they are not all the same. So let's just get clear on what some of those differences are.
1: Right. They're not all the same. And yeah, you can choose whichever you like, take what you like and enjoy it.
0: Well, Sam, I should let you get going. I may have made you late for dinner. Yeah,
1: maybe like two hours only.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This has been really fun. It's really great to connect. Like I said, my main thing is I wanted to be like, I need the update on Lalise 2. You gave us that, but we got a whole lot more than that. It would be fun if you're, if you're up for it to... We have this other podcast called Gear 30, where we are just allowed to sort of unapologetically nerd out about gear. It would be fun to Go through some of the boot stuff with you and ski design and, and the, the rest. Yeah, definitely. We we should make that happen at some point. Uh, not too not too too far down the road.
1: Yeah, let's do that. It sounds sounds interesting. Always up for something like that. And I will try to get a better internet connection for you. <laughs> <laughs> I th-
0: I think we did all right here. So hey, Sam, thanks so much. Good luck. With everything that you've got in front of you this season, we'll be cheering you on. Thanks,
1: Jonathan. It was great to talk to you. And yeah, hopefully to hear you soon back.
0: Okay, we'll do it soon. Take care, Sam. Take care. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And if you are enjoying these conversations, we'd encourage you to subscribe to the Blister Podcast. Leave us a rating or review in iTunes, and be sure to tell your friends about the show. I also want to say thanks to Sam for the conversation, and I'm definitely going to be bringing you back on, Sam, for that Gear 30 conversation. We should do that soon. Thanks, too, to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Crested Butte and Gunnison, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Off the Couch podcast channel. We'll see you there.